I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. Today's episode is actually part two of a conversation I had with Professor Danny Nobis. The first episode focused more on university education, as Professor Nobis has been working in the university system for over 25 years. This part focuses more on his psychoanalytic endeavors in theory and practice. about your psychoanalytic work too though because you're not just a research <laughs> methods professor <laughs> you also are an amazing psychoanalyst or someone who rants or someone who rants all the time about <laughs> about how terrible the world is i don't know maybe what do you want to know <laughs> what are you working on ah what am i working on um um, I always work on various projects at the same time. You know, it's the, it's the only way, it's the only way that I can keep myself motivated. Intellectual promiscuity. You know, um, if I'm bored with one project, uh, I go to another project. And, and that's how I keep going. And, and I often find that, that uh, the, the second project I'm working on inspires some of the stuff I'm doing on, on the first project. Okay, I will answer your question. I'm just about to finish... Uh, um, a book um, with with essays on the um, on the history of of, of, of Freudian psychoanalysis. Uh, I mean, I've always been interested in history uh, because it, it allows me again to to satisfy my uh, probably insufficiently analysed uh, uh, curiosities. Um, so, so this is a book, it, it, it's going to be called, well, assuming the publisher wants it to be called, uh, Freud in the Margins, Rethinking the History of Psychoanalysis. And I'm just about to, to finish it and, and send it off. And, and it's basically a collection of essays in, in which I look at various episodes in, in the history of psychoanalysis, but it's restricted here to to um, to Freud and his followers, to, to use the uh, the title of, of Paul Rosen's book, to look at the history of psychoanalysis um, in in a different way, um, uh, and and looking at it in a different way is essentially um, applying a different met- methodology. And and I don't claim originality for this at all, but. Uh, but basically, I, I apply the methodology of psychoanalysis to the history of psychoanalysis. And by the methodology of psychoanalysis, I mean this, um, and this has always caught my attention, again, because, because it, it satisfies my, my, my insufficiently analyzed curiosity. But, but you will remember that at one point in, um, I, I hope I'm not going to say something stupid now, but even if I do, who cares? At one point in the Moses of Michelangelo, uh, in Freud's essay, the Moses of Michelangelo, Freud compares the work of an analyst to, um, to the work of, of a, a late 19th century art scholar uh, called um, Giovanni Morelli. 
who um, who at the time was famous for inventing a, a new technique for uh, differentiating between an authentic master and, and a fake. And, and Morali said, um, um, there's a much more, there's a, there's a much better technique for differentiating a master from a fake than looking at the general composition of the painting. You need to look at the tiny little details because it's often in the tiny little details that uh, fraudulent uh, 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 painters, those, those who want to copy the great masters, make mistakes. And Freud in, 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 in an essay says, in a sense, the analyst does exactly the same. So we pay attention to, to, to what falls out of the analysand's coherent, consistent discourse. We, we pay attention to, to what appears in the margin, to, to the trifles. We, we pay attention to the rubbish heap of our observations, right? So I applied this method to various episodes in the history of psychoanalysis, and, and 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 I might give you an example if you want me to, but but and 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 I hope that in doing so, um, and and inevitably the book is not a comprehensive uh, history of psychoanalysis. I mean, how could it be? That would defy the whole purpose, you know. So it's a series of of, of re-readings, but I hope that in doing so, I shed light on on aspects of Freud as a man, as a scholar, as an analyst, and aspects of the cyclic movement that have hitherto um, not been appreciated or haven't been uh, sufficiently uh, valued. So that's what I'm doing. That's one of the things I'm doing. What's uh, an example? Um, well, uh, okay, let me think of a good example. Let me, let, let, um, um, I'll give you an example that I've been talking about uh, in, 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 in Vienna recently uh, and, in, and in, in various other places. Um, and it, it's a controversial example because it involves a patient and, and it involves um, uh, someone who's actually a public figure. So, uh, to cut a long and complicated story short, and that will be in the book, uh, assuming uh, that it'll get published, but it probably will, uh, he says, <laughs> um, with a certain degree of, of, of self-confidence. Um, early 1930s, um, someone called Alice of Battenberg, who is uh, Princess Alice of Battenberg, um, who is the mother-in-law of, um, of Queen Elizabeth II. So the current queen, you know her, everyone knows her, Queen Elizabeth II, um, is married to the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip. His mother had a mental breakdown. I'll, I'll spare you the details as to the circumstance. She had a mental breakdown. And she was sent to what was, at the time, the only residential psychoanalytic treatment center in Europe. And it was called Sanatorium, Kurhaus, Schloss Tegel. It was a short drive from uh, the center of Berlin, and it was run 
by um, a colleague of Freud's uh, called Ernst Simmel. Now, um, uh, someone whose work I love um, uh, and who I consider to be a friend uh, has, has written a fantastic book called Freud's Free Clinics, Elizabeth Danto, you may, you may know. So, so she talks a little bit about the sanatorium Schloss Tegel, but she doesn't talk about this particular case. Um, when Princess Alice arrived, uh, and the reason why, you know, uh, what I'm writing about is, uh, it's not controversial, but, but it's, it's sensitive. It's because this is a royal and her descendants are still alive, of course. But, but, but what I can say to you has been cleared, so I'm, I'm not going to say anything that uh, will get me, get me into trouble. When she arrived, um, she was in a right state. I mean, I imagine her in the, in the same state as Kira Knightley was in, in David Cronenberg's fa famous portrayal of Sabine Spielrein, when you remember this, when, when she arrives at the Buchholzli to be treated by uh, Carl Gustav Jung. So she was in a right state. So much so that at one point, Ernst Zimmel consults with Sigmund Freud. And, and he says to Sigmund Freud, what am I going to do with this? What am I going to do with this woman? And Freud says something that no psychoanalyst who is in their right mind, including, I hope, this one here, would be able to make sense of. He said to Zimmel, I strongly recommend that her ovaries are exposed to high-intensity X-rays, period. So what do you do with that, right? So what do you do with that? So, so this, is, this is my trifle. Yeah? So, so this is my little um, Freudian advice that doesn't fit into the picture, yeah? Because when you read it for the first time, you think, well, I mean, I mean, it's hardly a psychological intervention, right? <laughs> Exposing a woman's X uh, ovaries to high-intensity X-rays. Um, you think, uh, well, why on earth would Freud have said that? Yeah. So, so this is the kind of event you could say that is disturbing, is disruptive, it is nonsensical. It, 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 it potentially uh, undermines everything you've always known about Freud. But for me, and it's one of about 10 examples in my book, for me, it prompted um, what has now been quite a long, uh, uh, I a year-long process of research into the circumstances, and it means that you have to delve into archives, you have to, you have to look at contextual factors surrounding the admission of Princess Alice, um, that could possibly explain why Freud said this. Now, I'm not going to give you the whole story because, you know, you have to read the book. Um, but the conclusion is, uh, I will give you parts of the conclusion, that when it came to treating patients, As patients, or especially patients of whom Freud thought that they were psychotic, that Freud was not nearly as wedded to the efficacy of psychoanalysis as most of his followers, followers believed. It means that Freud was willing to experiment. It means that Freud was prepared 
to expose patients to interventions that were biological, that were physical, to interventions whose efficacy had not been proven. It means that Freud, in the best of cases, was actually much more creative, especially with psychotic patients, than uh, you could think he was. Or in the worst of cases, it meant that Freud had absolutely no reservations, especially with psychotic patients, to actually see them being treated in a radically non-psychotic way. Um, in this case, um, with a technique that had no proven efficacy for psychotic disorders that would have resulted, that did result in Princess Alice um, becoming sterile uh, because her ovaries were effectively destroyed, etc., etc. And so, I mean, I have I have a lot of these um, uh, events, these, these these trifles that have generally been written out of the history of psychoanalysis and, and that allow you to paint a different picture of Freud, the man of the psychotic community, et cetera, et cetera. So, so, so that's what it's all about. But, but you have to wait for, for the book to come out uh, to, uh, to read the rest of the story. And, um, and, and another project I've actually recently finished. I, I mean, I just handed it in. It's not a book. It's, it's, a, it's a, a long essay. Um, I, I've just handed in a long essay on, on the work of Francis Bacon. Not, not the philosopher, but the painter. Because the estate of Francis Bacon is about to launch a, a new book series called Francis Bacon Studies. And one of the books they wanted to do was uh, Francis Bacon, um, Psychoanalysis and Philosophy. And so I spent a good six months of my life, um, um, because that's what I do, you see. I become totally obsessed with the subject. And I would spend all my day, every day, uh, reading every single book or every single text about Francis Bacon that I could possibly lay my hands on. Um, and then when it's finished, I obviously sink into a deep depression. Now, that's not entirely true. But, you know, for six months, I've been totally obsessed by Francis Bacon. And I actually discovered, here's another trifle for you. I actually discovered that Francis Bacon owned a copy of Lacan's Écrit. But I have not been able to lay my hands on it because it has miraculously, it has miraculously disappeared. How good is that? So there's a picture of Francis Bacon's studio, and if you look at it, it's obviously not Bruce Finkster's translation, because by 2006, Francis Bacon had already died. But Francis Bacon, who died in 1992, owned a copy of Alan Sheridan's, you probably know the book, the silver, the silver uh, cover, right? The Selected Acre. It sits there on a commode next to his bed, right? And all the other books on that commode are now in the Hugh Lane Gallery uh, in Dublin. I mean, there's reasons for that, right? So, um, apart from this one. So, so the lacquer has disappeared. I'll tell you um, uh, if I ever find it, but um, uh, why would it disappear? Why would it disappear? And if Francis Bacon read Lacan, which paper would he have read? That makes, that's amazing. That makes me so happy. Yeah, oh, does it? <laughs> I love Francis Bacon. They had an exhibition of his work at the Met, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. And it uh -huh. had 52 of his paintings. 
And yeah. when I, after seeing 52 of his paintings, I literally found myself wandering around Manhattan. And then after like an hour, I was like, where am I going? I don't even know what I'm doing. I was just like stunned. I mean, the effect it has on you uh, is extraordinary. I mean, the argument that I make in the paper, you, you didn't ask me the question, but I'm going to tell you anyway, and then we can shift subjects if you want. But the argument I make in the paper, because what I hate, what I absolutely hate, is people who take um, psychoanalysis, especially Lacan, as a little toolbox that um, opens every door and, and that behind this door reveals um, secret meaning. So I hate it. I think it's facile. Um, I, I think Derrida was spot on when he said at the very beginning of, of uh, his uh, his critique on Lacan's reading of the Purloined Letter, um, uh, as, as, as you know, it's, it's in the postcard, where, where he says, when psychoanalysis sets out to find something, it only ever finds itself, you know? La psychanalyse se trouve. So I, I think he's, he's right up to a point that if you take the Lacanian toolbox uh, and, and you use it to read, I don't know, I mean, the number of times I've, I've read Lacanian readings of Black Swan, I mean, it makes me want to vomit. So I did not want to do that um, because it, it, it really goes against everything I stand for. So I thought I'll, I'll, I'm going to try and do something different. And then the question is, well, what do you want to do? What can, what, what, what can you do? And what I decided to do in the end was, um, uh, you, you know, I have a fondness uh, for Lacan's paper Literateur from, from the early 1970s, which, uh, you know, as you know, I've, I've been known to even impersonate on the occasion. <laughs> but, uh, but, but Lacan says something interesting, puzzling um, in, in that text about Joyce. Um, he says in the very beginning of that text, he says, um, um, when it came to littering the letter, and that's Joyce pun rather than Lacan's pun. When it, when, it, when, when it comes to making litter of the letter in, in Finnegan's Wake, but also to some extent already in, uh, in Ulysses, Joyce arrived at the best one could expect from an analysis at its end. And because of that, he didn't need psychoanalysis. And I mean, whatever that means in its own right, I thought, well, could we possibly extend something like that to the work, and I do mean the work, um, the activity, the creating activity of painting. So the paper I did for, for uh, and the book will come out later this year, for uh, Francis Bacon studies, um, doesn't really look at any of Francis Bacon uh, uh, paintings, and even less uh, involves an interpretation or a keen interpretation of one or the other painting, say the triptych or the crucifixion, but it looks at his process, as, at his creative activity. And, and I try to think of it um, as, as what could... I'm trying to think of it in terms of whether it could be looked at as a painting cure, as, as, as an analytic process through painting, you know, uh, which, again, I'm not sure is, is 
wildly original uh, because the surrealists. I mean, and I know you're interested in in, in the cut-up technique and and in in, in in surrealist techniques for for accessing the unconscious. Um, but, but basically, I thought that maybe we could do something with with what Francis Bacon had to say, and he had to say a lot because he was quite garrulous. Uh, almost more garrulous than I am when it came to to talking about his work. Um, I thought that maybe we could do something about what Francis Bacon had to say about his painting process in terms of the parallel with the cyclic process. Uh, as a result of which, you could say, as Lacan said about Joyce, he didn't need to go into analysis because he was never in analysis. Because through his painting, which, as you know, is quite repetitive and, and constructive and reconstructive, in the sense you could say he was always painting the same thing, he arrived at the best that one could possibly arrive at in analysis, the clinical process. So that's what it's all about. Um, but it took me six months to put it together um, because, because the literature on Francis Bacon is absolutely enormous. I mean, it's gargantuan. And, and my symptom uh, does not allow me to to, uh, to write anything without me feeling that I've, I've actually, uh, that I've done justice, I should probably say. Good scholars as we both are, it's called the literature review, Vanessa, right? So you do a literature review. So I thought, let me have a look at what, what Lacanian scholars have, have, have done about Francis Bacon. And lo and behold, I came across a paper by, by um, Pierre-Gilles Gigat. And then, but before long, you think, well, well, he should be ashamed of himself because because from beginning to end, it is it is full of factual and and it, and it's not be me saying this because I'm arrogant. I'm just you know, it's what you would say when you read an undergraduate essay: do your homework. <laughs> but of course, if you then do do your homework, it takes a long time. Um, so. Because the literature in this case is, is so is so voluminous, but um, I don't know. I mean, um, I've sp I've spoken to Bacon scholars uh, about it because that's the only thing I felt I had to do. Uh, I'm, I don't consider myself to be a Bacon scholar, so so you have to take the responsibility and make sure that if you make um, an interpretation of Francis Bacon work, that you actually inform yourself uh, about what 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 the the real experts have to say. And, yeah, uh, apparently they thought it was good enough. So, um, <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> I'd love to read that. I'd love to read both of those books. To, to, well, well the, the Bacon work is not a book. It's, it's, it's just an extended essay. Um, but it, it'll be a book on, on Francis Bacon, the psychoanalysis and philosophy. And, uh, yeah. So th those are two projects I've been working on. And... Um, and then, yeah, there's, there's a couple of other things. I, 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 I thought I would get a paper on masculinity published, but as I said earlier on, uh, the reviewers really didn't like it. <laughs> Why didn't they like it? Um, well, they thought I'm not going to read out the review. Uh, they, 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 they thought it, it, it was just a, an extensive rant, um, and um, that didn't make sense at all. I mean, I've long given up. I've long given up uh, on on the idea that uh, peer review is um, is a fully uh, fair, transparent process. Um, a, a wonderful writer 
uh, wrote something about it in, in the London Review of Books. Uh, Stefan Collini, I think, wrote wrote about it, the peer review process in the London Review of Books uh, recently, and 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 it was spot on. Uh, uh, of course, it's not double double blind. Of course, you're not being reviewed by peers, uh, because w- were your peers to review you, um, the review process would probably take three years because your peers would be busy. Uh, I mean, I say all the time when I'm being asked for reviews, I'm just too busy to review other people's work. As a result of which, most of the time, you're actually reviewed by people who are not your peers at all. Um, and in double-blind peer review is by no means the gold standard that uh, the academic community thinks it is. I mean, that's that's an illusion. It's 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 a fantasy. It, the, the system is entirely bankrupt. Now, I'm not saying that because I was rejected. <laughs> at all. Um, and, and, I, and I've written pieces over the years that, that really uh, shouldn't have been published and were published anyway, and others that shouldn't have been published because they were incredibly, incredibly bad. I'm, I'm saying that because, because the system doesn't work. And, um, and look, I mean, we don't have to carry on with this, but another problem with it is that you obviously, with, with, with this type of process, you always, you always have a tendency towards the middle. You have a tendency towards the common denominator. I mean, let's face it. Um, um, <laughs> um, I don't think that the majority of Freud's papers would ever have gotten published if they'd been uh, sent through the blind peer review process. Uh, let's yeah, know. I think about that all the time. And the fact that he just has opinions and says what he thinks, and then he's like, I'm going to say something different next time because, you know, that's how people think about things. <laughs> Like this would never have gotten published now. Let's, but, but, I mean, but think about think about all the people that you and I read uh, in psychoanalysis or continental philosophy. You know, um, I mean, would Derrida have gotten his paper published? Of course not. I mean, like, oh, definitely. I mean, like. No way! Like I would ever get a paper published. Uh, a Gumbin? I don't think so. Deleuze? No, oh, absolutely not. So, so, the, so the papers that get published in peer-reviewed journals are most of the time papers that people can't be bothered reading anymore. Um, because they don't contain anything terribly original or, 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 or terribly exciting, and, and 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 as a result of which, I mean that's 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 the whole drama of the business behind it. Uh, you have all these journals publishing stuff after having gone through this process that is 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 just going to disappear in the creases of history. Uh, before long. Well, that's uh, a good point then. It's not very original because, you know, they're constantly, I mean, the, the paper I read the other day was like every other sentence was a quote from somebody else and it was just like piecing together all these quotes and citations and I was like, by the time I got through it, it was an interesting idea that the writer had, but it was like really hard to get what he was saying because he was so concerned with citing things every like other sentence. And yeah. it's like, why didn't you say what you think? Put some citations in so people know where to look. <laughs> and that's it. But it's like they can't say what they think. You know, no, they have to they have to justify what they say every every step. 
Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if one of the peer reviewers said that um, the, the author in this question had to uh, uh, tone down his his his, his uh, original thinking, had to substantiate it, uh, and but as a result of it, you, you get what I call a yeah, tendency towards the, the middle, the convergence towards the common denominator, as a result of which you read it and you think, oh, well, it's all right, but... Uh, uh, I mean, I stopped reading most cyclic journals a long time ago. I haven't read them in years. Ah, I mean, every so often you do come across an interesting paper that you say, oh, yeah, I mean, actually, th that's really, you know, cutting edge. And, and that, that's probably one that slipped through the nets of the peer review system or something like that. But most of the time you say, oh, oh. I, I guess be. I read just people I know at this point. I'm like, what's so-and-so doing? What's so-and-so doing? And I just have been reading people I'm yeah. familiar with. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, but uh, anyway, that, that was probably me ranting again. I love <laughs> ranting. I think we need more ranting. <laughs> well, if you want a rant, I can give you one, Vanessa. <laughs> so where do people find you? Are you doing any talks or conferences or anything? Oh, dear, where did they find me? Yeah. Well, given that I always pack my bags and never go on a holiday, they can come and find me in London if they want. Uh, what, have I, what have I got coming up? At the uh, Freud Museum? Look, thankfully, thankfully, um, I think the first talk I've got coming up is going to be on Francis Bacon, and, and that's, that's going to be in, in, uh, on the 8th of June, uh, whatever the first weekend of June is, um, here in London, Centre for Freudian Analysis and Research. Um, for reasons I do not understand at all, I've been asked to give a keynote at um, the International Neuropsychoanalysis Conference in Brussels uh, in July. And so, so uh, uh, I'm going to delve into uh, Freud's uh, three essays on the theory of sexuality again, and 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 uh, and see if there's anything that falls out of the picture that that could possibly have, be of interest to neuropsychoanalysts. We're doing an event again on comedy and psychoanalysis. Um, I'm, I'm going to be plugging someone else's event here, but 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 I I, I love. Uh, I love doing that because because uh, you know forget about me blowing my own trumpet. Uh, I, uh, you, you know you need to blow other people's trumpet. So so we 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 got an event coming up at the Freud Museum sometime in May on psychoanalysis and comedy, which should be good fun. Uh, How did you start working at the Freud Museum, running the Freud Museum? God, how much time have you got left? My tenure at the Freud Museum has now come to an end, but but um. um uh, I did it four years, and, and it was fine. Um, it's it's a long story. Um, a good friend of mine, Lisa Apignanesi, um, happened to uh, sit on one of the panels I organized at a literature festival uh, a couple of years ago, and, and we started talking, as you do, about Freud and psychoanalysis. You know, that's what you talk about. And before long, she said that she wanted to step down um, and as the chair of the Freud Museum. And, and I thought, I mean, I've always loved the Freud Museum uh, I, 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 because, you know, it's history. It's, it, it's, it, it's a shrine. It's, 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 a kind of, it's a kind of place where, where, you, where you go to, to, to go on a pilgrimage. And, 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 
so I've loved it, uh, always, always loved it. Um, so, so I had the opportunity to to take on that role, and I'll spare the details before long. Uh, I was in in the seat of the chair of the Freud Museum, and and, and I think. Um, running a small charity like that, because it is a small charity organization, we don't get any money from from the government at all, um, is a challenge. I had some experience, and, and we don't need to go back to that, uh, working uh, as a senior manager at the university, um, but not in a charity, although universities in this country are also considered to be a charity, but they have a special status. So it was a challenge because because um, small budget, um, um, uh, difficult to uh, to fundraise. Um, it's it's not like it's not like in the US where, where psychoanalysts are more than happy to donate. Uh, in their last will and testament, or all their uh, movable and immovable assets to 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 the society in which they train. So that we don't we don't get that here. But but I think I think that during the time of my tenure, I would hope that during the time of my tenure, um, we've um, we've enhanced, we've broadened our range of activities. I mean, that's actually the, the first thing I wanted to do. That I said, look. Um, um, we need to make sure that we that we organize our events in such a way that we can attract a, a, a very broad constituency of of people, i.e., young and old. Um, um, uh, yes, um, uh, psychedelic practitioners and experts, and but also people who don't know anything about psychoanalysis. Uh, so, so we really need to. Uh, widen our catchment area and and I hope that uh, it's it's happened um uh, but so yeah what, what I, I was going to I was I was plugging someone else's events so, so so we're doing uh we're doing something on psychoanalysis and comedy in in uh, in May and and as you'll see there's lots of other stuff going on at the Freud Museum in which I do not participate but that that is nonetheless uh, really exciting no, it's great to see. There's always events there, and they, they post them on their own podcast as well. Yeah, I love listening to them that way. That's right. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I'm actually, I, actually, I forgot. Uh, uh, I'm also giving a, uh, I, I, I shall appear briefly at the IPA conference in London uh, in the summer. Um, so it's a conference on the feminine. And um, and I've, I was asked by a very good friend of mine, uh, Jill Gentile, whom you may know, to uh, to, con- to contribute to a panel. And uh, and if you're as neurotic as I am, uh, you, you you just can't say no. So so I said yes. And so I'll be at the IPA conference in in July as well, uh, which is great. Uh, yeah, no, Jill's great. She contributed a chapter of the Rendering Unconscious book on hate speech. Oh, did she? Ah, right, fantastic. Yeah. Um, well, there's hate speech and hate speech, obviously. Um, so part of me feels like saying there's not enough of it, but uh, you, you know, uh, you, we need to define what hate is first before we before we think about that. No, no. But um, again, to answer your previous question, later this year, if all goes well, there's a second ACRE conference in Pittsburgh. Uh, so following on from the conference that uh, took place in Ghent last year, my good friend Derek Hook. 
and Callum Neal and Stein Van Hul and Bruce Bruce Fink uh, join hands to do the second ACRE conference, which will coincide with the publication in English of Lacan's Seminar 6 on Desire and the publication in English of the second volume of Reading a Creed. So, uh, touch wood, if my abstract is, uh, is accepted, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll talk a bit more about a Cree in Pittsburgh as well. Nice. Uh, that's enough. That's enough for me. Yeah, that's, that's enough. good. That's enough for me. That, yeah, that's more than enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have a website or anything, or should I just post links to all of these different events? No, uh, I, I don't have a website at all. I, I, uh, I hate it. I hate it. I'll organize it for you. Then you'll have everything in one place. If you if if you want to create a website for me, if someone else out there... No, just for the podcast episode. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you something. I'll tell you, I'll tell you something funny. Um, I used to have a PA, um, uh, lovely, lovely personal assistant, and and at one point she uh, she set me up on Twitter. She set me up on Facebook uh, and uh, and on LinkedIn. It was hell. It was hell. It was absolute hell. I mean, I, I already, on average, get about three hundred emails every day. You know, that's not junk. That's just like proper emails. I got emails from all around the world saying, "People, can I please be your friend?" And and um, I, I just it was. But what's most interesting is is that uh, she asked me for a picture, and um, and I sent her a picture in in my rock star outfit because all this academia, Lacan stuff, that's just something I do on the side. You know, I don't really want to do that. Uh, most of the time, I just want to play music. So, so I sent her a picture, um, which I think is, is still on the um, the, uh, the Twitter uh, feed. And someone said to me the other day, just the day before yesterday, that apparently there's a rumor going on that this it's not really me. Well, uh, guys out there, I can tell you, it's me. It's me. It is me. Um, so, so I sent her a picture, and I said, you know, here's a picture uh, for, um, in this case, for LinkedIn. And she's, and she's like, no, you can't, you can't put that there. You can't put that there. Uh, People are not going to take you seriously anymore. And I remember saying, that has always been the last thing I've ever worried about. And the day I'm taking myself so seriously that I can only talk about serious things in a serious way, you, could, you should either call an ambulance or the police. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Professor Danny Nobis. For more, please visit our website, renderingunconscious.org, or my website, drvanessasinclair.net. Zeitgeist creating anyone who timeless rituals found in Tibetan, Nepalese, West repetition is unexact. Create small deviations, differences where change may come into play, small cuts, spaces that open potential for something new, 
which then in turn alter the system. In this light, repetition may be seen as the scaffolding of the widely known that these practices are happening here and now, reflecting the juxtaposition of content present within the dynamic unconscious. What is often under-recognized is that exchange for a limited edge, we have to look during the same time period and within the very cultural and intel, then we too can birth the field of all skies. I write across the picture a methodology fundamentally mirror and make use of unconscious processes. And often the more process-oriented techniques later utilized by affects how people treat me. I was thinking from a view of direction, from a point of view of a third mind and work. Do you get sort of insights and ideas and epiphanies that are so drives? At this point, Freud was solely focused on libido. In 1920, their holy son. Further along the lines of Eros and Thanatos, adding the concept of the death drive to the death drive. There has been much debate as to the exact origins of good homes. The movement has not been given its proper place in our history. This year, this has finally begun to shift, and Dada is beginning to receive and cognition it deserves. One might even view the difficulty art historians have displayed in defining dark horse, highlighting the premise of the movement itself, accentuating its resistance to definition, systemization, and categorization, a resistance reflective of the human unconscious and sexuality, which subvert normalization and classification. Proponents of new ways of thinking, although these sequences are intended to be imaginary, no materials, distinction, either in the picture or in the sound, was made. Writing, the cut-up, performance, and chants. They created various manifestos and publications, influenced by the constant change. Publishing and distributing their own manifestos as early as 1909. And all of these areas are promoted provocation in art and performance, often commenting on contemporary Western society, industrialization, technology, youth, and violence, while keeping an eye towards the future. Writing in arts magazine, rituals transgressive occurrences, they're your own answers. Originator of Dada. Pacavia began then, but they're usually not constructed, darling. Abstract reminds me that separation completed in Babylon principle, where essence does or work fits in perfectly. 
avant-garde musician who remains in which we strengthen the totality by written in throughout his career, which posits that it was the organism and strengthened the must be awakened is exactly the energy with girl we couldn't get. Girl, the teeth are one thing. They're a physical trait. But they come on, baby. Light. Stuff you've done touches upon more complicated aspects that have disintegration in the concept of art. Soon after, effectivity, the movement. Four works for the 1913 Armory Show bring in a two-by-three item of their choosing in the United States. The coachman does so, raising Severine's arm in the and arch, then the world air, then goes behind the tree trunk to make the rope fast, that of break. That break. delivered the artists and intellectuals from the obsession of thought.